And now, Box 39 Red Button is handing over its slot to one of its stablemate programs. Welcome to Bill's Big Bag of Musicologies, where we cast our ears back to musical selections from past editions of Box 39 and the essential analyses and commentaries by Guppy Productions' very own aid. That is to say, me. Here we have the musicologies from an episode of Box 39 on the topic of Dream Destinations. By looking at the color Can't you see The Sonics here singing You Can't Judge a Book by the Cover has reminded me of a visit to a dream destination I made several years ago. It was a Buddhist temple on a mountain top in Nepal, fantastically remote, run by silent monks in traditional robes, food cooked wordlessly over gathered firewood and peat, water sipped from cupped hands held under a babbling spring on the forested slopes, purity, innocence, simplicity, Back to rustic nature, almost completely indifferent to the modern world amongst the serene and speechless Buddhists. What I would say, though, is that using their business centre with three PCs, a laser printer and Wi-Fi internet, was pretty pricey at $10 an hour. I suppose it was a wee bit of a tourist trap for Western wannabe hippies. I exchanged my copy of John Ralston Saul's The Unconscious Civilization for what I thought was a book about German philosophers, but turned out to be a Sven Hassel novel about a, a Wehrmacht tank crew levelling a Polish city in 1939 and looking for prostitutes. As they say, you can't judge a book by the cover. You can't judge a book by looking at the cover. sights to see And when I look in my window So many different people to be That it's strange So strange You got to pick up every stitch You got to pick up Donovan singing Season of the Witch has got me thinking about the Salem Witch Trials, where it is now believed a common grain fungus called ergot might be responsible for the terrible events of 1692. I visited Salem myself as a tourist to see what I could find out about it. There was a link between the strange symptoms reported by Salem's accusers, who eventually had eight young women executed for being witches, and the hallucinogenic effects of drugs similar to LSD, which is a derivative 
derivative of ergot, a fungus that affects rye grain. Ergot poisoning has been implicated in other outbreaks of bizarre behaviour down through the centuries, such as the one that afflicted the small French town of Pont-Saint-Esprit, where there was a mass poisoning in 1951. Unable to score any ergot in Salem, I tried travelling to Pont-Saint-Esprit instead, but in the end I drew a blank and could only find psilocybin mushrooms, which, I must admit, did cause that particular backwater in southern France to cast a very, very strange spell over me that lasted about four hours. Must be the season of the I'm gonna need someone to help me I'm gonna need somebody's hand I'm gonna need someone to hold me down I'm gonna need someone to care I'm gonna rise and shake my body I'll start cooling out my hair I'm gonna cover myself with the ashes of you And nobody's gonna give a damn Son of a bitch Give me a drink Yes, Nathaniel Ratliff and the Night Sweats. Night Sweats, Night Sweats, Night Sweats. Been there, done that on my travels. The Delhi Belly, the Thailand Tummy, the Bali Blow Mud, the Rangoon Royal Squat, the Filipino Payload, the Chilean Cheese Squeeze, churning the Doogie Butter in Chad, liberating the Brown Trout in Liberia, making underwater sculptures in Santiago de Compostela, curling some pipe in Kurdistan, bombing the bowl in Mumbai. And that one used to sound rather better when it was still called Bombay. Yes, night sweats, night sweats, night sweats. Every intrepid traveller to dream destinations must take care with their food and be ready to take a time out to treat their tummy troubles from time to time. My heart is breaking, hands are shaking, bugs are crawling all over me. My heart is breaking, hands are shaking. You are listening to Bill's Big Bag of Musicologies, an intriguing compilation of AIDS musical choices and the odd commentaries he thinks we need to hear. listening to Semi-Charmed Life by Third Eye Blind, and it reminds me of an incident when I was travelling in a remote part of Thailand. It's the expression semi-charmed specifically that triggers the memory. 
I was in a village near the border with Myanmar, and I was being given a chance to have a go at snake charming. Snake charming is the practice of appearing to hypnotize a snake, often a cobra, by playing and waving around an instrument called a pungi. A typical performance may also include handling the snakes or performing other seemingly dangerous acts. Well, I was playing the pungi flute for a basket full of venomous cobra snakes, and they were standing there about three feet high rising out of the basket, when my smartphone rang. Astounded that I had managed to get a signal in such a remote place, I answered it. With suddenly no pungi flute playing for the only semi-charmed snakes, they snapped out of it and attacked us. Now, I was okay, but three children and a pregnant woman were badly hurt. I believe in the sand beneath my toes The beach gives a feeling and a deep feeling I believe in the faith that grows And the full I hope can make me cry When I'm with you I feel like I could die And that would be alright, alright Every Day I Have the Blues by T-Bone Walker. The colour blue has got me thinking about a travel idea in Indonesia. It's known as the quest for the Telur Bebek di Ribus Ayer Dari Tanki di Belakang Rumah Pak Rugimin. It's quite a mouthful, but try saying it to a motorcycle taxi rider at the railway station at Lumpayangan in Java, and he will drive you up into the mountains to a village called Kalyorang and introduce you to a man called Rugimin, the seventh son of the seventh son, in a family famous for raising chickens, geese, turkeys and ducks, whose eggs are, of course, blue. You will wait patiently as Mr. Rugiman prepares the one-of-a-kind dish found only in that house. This is the quest for Telur Bebek di Ribus Ayar Dari Tanki di Belakang Rumah Pak Rugiman, or in English, the quest for the blue duck egg boiled with water from the tank behind Mr. Rugiman's house. Ah, yes. Thank you, T-Bone Walker, for triggering the memory. Nobody loves me. Nobody seems to care. Nobody loves me, I say. I, I well, I nobody seems to care. Speaking of bad in trouble, mama. Well, you know I've had my share. Party girls, don't get hurt. Can't feel anything. When will I learn? I push it down. I push it down. I'm the one for a good time call, phone's blowing up Ring on my doorbell, I feel the love, I feel the love
Ah yes, Sia here is singing a song called Chandelier, and this has me recalling how I almost swung from the chandeliers one evening on the island of Vanuatu. I was following in the footsteps of Prince Charles, who was made a high chief during a visit to the island in 2018. Charles, the heir to the British throne, was given a woven pandana skirt for the ceremonial occasion and drank a shell of kava, a traditional drink in the South Pacific. Kava is a narcotic drink made from mixing the powdered root of the pepper plant with water and results in a numb feeling around the mouth, lips and tongue and a huge sense of relaxation. When I visited Vanuatu recently, posing as a minor royal, I tried drinking kava and I got completely out of it and would have swung from the chandeliers had I not been in a ceremonial grass hut and dressed in a woven pandana skirt. Hey, Prince Charles. Respect. This is Cone Radio on one oh six point six FM. Here we have the musicologies from an episode of Box 39 on the topic of the inner child. Hello, Mara. Hello, Fada. Here I am at Camp Granada Camp is very Entertaining And they say we'll have some fun If it stops raining I went hiking With Joe Spivey He developed Poison Ivy You remember Leonard Skinner He got Tomaine poisoning Last night after dinner All the counselors Hate the waiters And the lake has Alligators And the head coach Wants no sissies So he reads to us From something called Ulysses Now I don't want This should scare you I was a kid who mostly avoided organized or institutionalized fun and instead made his own. I reenacted English Civil War battles one-on-one in a forest with a friend. I walked the Pennine Way alone at the age of 15. I dug an escape tunnel under my garden shed. I didn't join the Cubs or the Scouts. So when I looked across the Atlantic at the children they had over there in America being herded off to summer camps every year for paramilitary-style institutionalized fun, regimented sing songs, systematic bullying of those marginalized by their bodies or character, the premium set on compliance and participation, the homogenous clothing and baseball caps, and the stage-managed hysterical moments of competitive frenzy rooted in an unbendingly ideological approach to childhood. I always thought that they seemed like communist children in compulsory communist boot camps. Later, I realized that the ethos being promoted was not one of the state owning the means of production, but I still think they seemed like communist children in compulsory communist boot camps. I would have dug a tunnel and escaped. Wait a minute. It stopped hailing. Guys are swimming. Guys are sailing. Playing baseball. Gee, that's better. Mata fada, kindly disregard this letter. To Bombay, a traveling circus came. They brought an intelligent elephant, and Nellie was her name. One dark night, she slipped her iron chain, and off she ran to Hindustan and was never seen again. And said goodbye to the circus Off she went with a trumpety trump Trump, trump, trump Nelly the elephant packed her trunk And trundled back to the jungle Off she went with a trumpety trump Trump, trump, trump The head of the herd was calling Far, far away 
They met one night in the silver light on the road to Mandalay. So Nelly the elephant packed her trunk and said goodbye to the circus. Off she went with a trumpety trump, 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 trump. While anthropomorphism, the attribution of human characteristics to non-human entities, has long been a staple of children's storybooks, researchers have only recently focused on directly measuring its effect on children's knowledge about real animals. It has now been found that anthropomorphic language and pictures in storybooks do not interfere with factual learning about real animals. Even though children do retell anthropomorphic stories using anthropomorphic language, they are nonetheless better at providing factual biological explanations after being exposed to anthropomorphic stories. This suggests that anthropomorphism in children's fiction may not have the strong negative impact as previously believed. This clearly was in the minds of gritty Sunderland punk rockers' toy dolls when their cover version of Nelly the Elephant was a number one hit in the UK indie chart in 1983. Never before or since has factual biological knowledge about elephants been so widely, and one could say subversively, spread amongst the children of the UK. You're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Musicologies, an astounding compilation of Aid's choices of music and the unexpected things he says. Right, said Fred, both of us together, one each end and steady as we go. Tried to shift it, couldn't even lift it, we was getting nowhere. And so we had a cup of tea and right, said Fred, give a shout for Charlie. Up comes Charlie from the floor below. After straining, even and complaining, we was getting nowhere. And so we had a cup of tea and Charlie had a think and he thought we ought to take off all the handles and the things what held the candles. But it did no good, well I never thought it would. All right, said Fred, have to take the feed off to get them feed off, wouldn't take a mo. Okay, here's a question for you. What does Bernard Cribbins have in common with William Shatner, David Duchovny, David Soule, Stephen Seagal, Bruce Willis, Robert Mitchum, Patrick Swayze, Russell Crowe, Don Johnson, Linda Carter, Lee Majors, Robert Downey Jr. and David Hasselhoff? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking they're all actors who took the misguided step of releasing a musical album. That'd be true, but here on Box 39, we like to dig a little deeper. No. What does Bernard Cribbins have in common with all the actors I just mentioned? Ah, a text. Who's this? Okay, let's see if Mango Dread has the correct answer. He says, They all auditioned to be the narrator of the British animated children's TV series, The Wombles, which ran from 1973 to 1975, and Bernard Cribbins got cast in the role. Correct! Well done, Mango Dread. So Charlie and me had another cup of tea and then we went home. I said to Charlie... We'll just have to leave it standing on the landing, that's all. You see, the trouble with Fred is he's, he's too hasty. Now, you never get nowhere if you're too hasty. I'd like to build the world a home And furnish it with love Grow apple trees and honeybees And snow-white turtle doves Teach the world to sing
There was a post-World War II enough is enough consensus among war-weary ordinary folk that began with Winston Churchill being thrown out of office in 1945 and extended through the you-never-had-it-so-good 1960s and the lowest-ever income inequality between rich and poor in the 1970s until the powers that be chose to tear up Britain's social fabric and reverse the process starting in 1979. Ian has chosen I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing to evoke this much-maligned era of optimism, egalitarianism and communal self-discovery. I myself would have chosen the opening song of the musical Hair, which declared, This is the dawning of the Age of Aquarius, where the expression Age of Aquarius referred to the wholesome heyday of the hippie and New Age movements, culminating in the 1970s. The song further defined this dawning of the age within its first lines, When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. However, prominent astrologers denounce the lyrics as astrological gibberish, noting that Jupiter aligns with Mars several times a year and the moon is in the seventh house for two hours every day. Oh well, maybe Ian has opted for the better era-defining song after all. Cognitive dissonance occurs when a person holds contradictory ideas and feels psychological stress when they experience something that goes against one or more of them. The discomfort is triggered by the person's belief clashing with new information perceived, wherein they try to find a way to resolve the contradiction to reduce their discomfort. Of course, as a kid in the 1970s, I had no power to change what I was seeing and hearing on TV. I loved Tomorrow's World, but I didn't like jazz music at that point in my life. Here we are listening to Johnny Dankworth's theme tune for Tomorrow's World. It was a great program, but its theme tune was jazz, hence the cognitive dissonance. TV in the 1970s, with its three channels, was by halves both inspiring and oppressive. Tomorrow's World was inspiring, but things like Songs of Praise, Pop Black on a Black and White Telly, and Crossroads were oppressive. Jazz by Johnny Dankworth and Cleo Lane was part of the oppression. But tomorrow's world was good. Cognitive dissonance. smile bring me laughter all the while in this world where we live there should be more happiness so much joy you can give to each brand new bright tomorrow make me happy through the years never bring me Okay, I'm going to perhaps ruffle a few feathers here now. I may rub some people up the wrong way, uh, put some noses out of joint, get on some listeners' nerves, get under their skin or even drive them up the wall, bug them, needle them, rattle them, prick them, bite them, poke them in the eye, 
give them a dead leg, knee them in the groin, um, disconcert them, gainsay them, uh, beg to differ, dissent, disagree, diverge from them, deviate, be discordant, or punch them in their metaphorical teeth, or chin, or nose. Well, here we go. Morecambe and Wise were not as good and as enduringly stand the test of time as good as the two Ronnies. There, I've said it. Bring me fun, bring me sunshine, bring me This is Cone Radio on 106.6 FM. Here we have the musicologies from an episode of Box 39 on the topic of the Broken Olympics. Olympics are an exhibition of a pinnacle of human endeavor and the striving for excellence and healthy living. Outstanding human specimens, athletes, are mostly removed from the kinds of lives ordinary mortals live. They are given money, special facilities, special food, and in many cases they are given special drugs, the use of which is disguised by other special drugs, until new special drugs come along which are forbidden, and the old ones are no longer forbidden, and then new special drugs are developed to disguise the use of the other new but still forbidden special drugs. And so we find ourselves witnessing the pinnacle of human endeavor and the striving for excellence and healthy living sponsored by multinational corporations who produce and promote foods and drinks that contain huge amounts of salt and fat and sugar that cause diabetes and rotting teeth in the obese bodies of couch potato sports watching humans wearing high-tech training shoes that were created cheaply and sold expensively thanks to the violence of poverty in countries that have scarcely any athletes attending the games. to exactly a year ago and what was the news in Japan's capital city? Well, hundreds of luxury apartments overlooking Tokyo Bay that were due to be converted from the athlete's village had already been sold, just one of the many headaches caused by the historic postponement of the Tokyo Olympics. 
Touted by developers as a flagship neighborhood for urban lifestyles, the buildings housing the 11,000 competitors were to be hastily repurposed into more than 4,000 condos with stunning city views, some carrying a price tag of $1.5 million. However, the decision to postpone the games by up to a year had pitched buyers into uncertainty. In a previous Olympics held in Japan, the flats designed to accommodate black athletes from African countries had their toilets disabled and sealed off, and portaloos and makeshift showers were placed outside the apartment buildings, with the given reason being that Japanese people would be reluctant to buy such apartments unless they could be reassured that the bathrooms in them had been disabled and sealed off for the duration of the Olympics. Ben Johnson beat Carl Lewis in the 1988 Olympics 100m final in a famous showdown. Lewis started to explain away his defeat. Without naming any names, he said, There are a lot of people coming out of nowhere. I don't think they are doing it without drugs. This was the start of Lewis's calling on the sport of track and field to eliminate the illegal use of performance-enhancing drugs. Cynics noted that the problem had been in the sport for many years, and it only became a cause for Lewis once he was actually defeated. Three days after the 100m final, Ben Johnson tested positive for steroids. His medal was taken away, and Lewis was awarded the gold and credited with a new Olympic record. Fifteen years later, in 2003, the Director of Drug Control Administration of the United States Olympic Committee revealed that more than a hundred American athletes failed drug tests and that Carl Lewis had tested positive three times at the 1988 Olympic trials for performance-enhancing drugs. You're listening to Bill's Big Pack of Musicologies, celebrating the genius of Eight's musical selections and the unusual things he says. It's been a long day without you, my friend, and I'll tell you. See you again We've come a long way From where we began Oh, I'll tell you all about it When I see you again When I see you again The European Olympic Committee was critical in several key areas of Atlanta's performance in staging the 1996 Olympics, including the level of crowding in the Olympic Village, the quality of available food, the accessibility and convenience of transportation, and the Games' general atmosphere of commercialism. At the closing ceremony, IOC President Juan Antonio Samarac 
said in his closing speech, well done Atlanta, and simply called the games most exceptional. This broke precedent for Samurai, who had traditionally labelled each games the best Olympics ever at each closing ceremony, a practice he resumed at the subsequent games in Sydney in 2000. Greece was awarded the 2004 Summer Olympics. It was lauded for its efforts to promote the traditional values of the Olympic Games, which some IOC observers felt had been lost due to the over-commercialization of the 1996 Games. You'd think this make-as-much-money-as-you-can attitude might have meant we won't see you again with regard to American bids to stage the Games when there are so many countries and cities to choose from. But no, the 2028 Games will be in Los Angeles for the third time. How do I breathe without you? I'm feeling so cold. I'll be waiting right here for you till the day you're home. When I see you This is Cone Radio on 106.6 FM. Here we have the musicologies from an episode of Box 39 on the topic of houseplants. I grow my houseplants in a special room which I keep dark and well ventilated. My favourite is a sativa and indica hybrid. This aromatic plant grows with a bushy, dense stature and with its relatively short flowering time it has fantastic yields. I grow these houseplants directly in a flow of highly oxygenated, nutrient-enriched water. Rarely, if ever, can you find such ideal conditions in soil due to the lack of organic matter left behind on the surface, contamination and biological imbalances. All the nutrients the houseplants require are supplied when I mix the solution with the water. This solution needs nitrogen, potassium, calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, iron and copper. I recommend spending a large share of your budget on a good lighting setup. I don't let people come and go to my houseplants room. In fact, I keep it under lock and key and very few people know about it. And the kids gather around trying to see what's inside. Give me spots on my apples, or leave me the birds and the bees. 
One of the most significant and yet overlooked houseplants in history is one that was left outside the back door of what is now known as the Dallas County Administration Building, which faces Dealey Plaza in Dallas. In 1963, it was known as the Texas School Book Depository. The potted plant was a Mexican asparagus fern, and it was from under its orange clay pot on the 22nd of November that year that Lee Harvey Oswald retrieved the key that let him get into the building, the sixth floor of which gave him the vantage point from which he was able to fire three shots at a car travelling at 12 miles an hour from 265 feet away, a feat of marksmanship which resulted in the death of US President J.F. Kennedy. The fact that this houseplant was not mentioned even once in the 888-page report of the 1964 Warren Commission inquiry into the assassination has done much to cultivate the idea that there was some kind of cover-up. You're listening to the genius of Aid's astounding musical selections and the odd commentaries he thinks we need to hear. As a student, I shared a house with none other than Bill Lawrence, who had a passion for growing houseplants, although, because of the demands placed upon him by raising a family and buying decidedly inexpensive second-hand cars every few years, it would be 38 years before he was able to arrange for a radio program specifically about houseplants to be broadcast. And here we are now with Capreet and Natalie. One day, starving and as skint as ever, I ventured out of our shared student digs with enough money to buy some cheap bacon offcuts and some discounted stale bread. Unfortunately, on passing the newsagents, I decided to buy 40 cigarettes and a packet of Rizzlers instead. Troubled by my hunger later that evening and with Bill away somewhere, I went into his room and ate some fiddle leaf figs, some peppery nasturtiums, some scented geranium and some parsley, all of which were growing in Bill's beloved window box. When he returned, I told him that some people had broken into the house and eaten his plants, and I had to lie to the police when they came round. I'm 
I once gave rise to a world record, although I carefully never took credit for it. It was in the 1980s when, once a week, I would go on what we called a beer chase with my friends. Six pubs, six pints of beer, all consumed in just two hours. A pint of bitter in the Duke of Wales, another in the Six Bells, another in the Red Lion, a fourth in the Hare and Hounds, a fifth in the Carpenter's Arms, and then, as tradition would have it, the absolute killer, an obligatory pint of Guinness in the Royal Oak. On top of five rapidly drunk pints of bitter, this was something I just could not cope with, and I got into the habit of excusing myself and pouring almost all of the pint of Guinness into the pot in which a yucca plant was growing in the hallway, leading to the gents. Over the course of six months, this yucca plant grew to be the largest in the world, and the owner of the Royal Oak had to put it in his garden. All night long. That's right, boy. You can do it. Feed me, see more. Feed me all night long. <laughs> Cause if you feed me, see more, I can grow up big and strong. You like a Cadillac cop On a gas shot on jackpot How about a date with Hedy Lamar You're gonna get it If you want it, baby How'd you like to be a big wheel Dining out for every meal I'm the man to make it all real You're gonna get it Hey, I'm your genie I'm your friend I'm your willing slave <laughs> Retouching portraits was widely popular during the early 20th century, but in the Soviet Union, highly skilled retouchers were also employed for a more sinister role. As comrades fell out of favor with Stalin and were removed from office or executed, the politically inconvenient figures were carefully painted out of the frame. A famous photograph taken in Leningrad in 1926 showed from left to right, standing behind a desk, Nikolai Antipov, Joseph Stalin, Sergei Kirov and Nikolai Shvernik. In 1934 the photo was modified so that Sergei Kirov was no longer in it. In 1938 Nikolai Antipov was airbrushed out of it. Then finally in 1946 Nikolai Shvernik was removed and so Stalin was now in that 1926 photograph pictured standing alone at the desk with his three former but later to be displeasing colleagues gone. Unfortunately, with the last airbrushing, a houseplant, a four-foot-high Russian sage plant given to Stalin by his wife, was inadvertently removed from the photograph, and a hitherto highly skilled and admired photographic retoucher called Anatoly Sergeyev spent the rest of his life in a labor camp in Siberia.
I used to ask my foreign language students, do you like my lovely, tall, bushy, old, pink Nepalese potted houseplant? It may have been a rather silly sentence with too many adjectives crammed in and therefore not a good model, but what it did do was illustrate the issue of adjective order. And in this regard, do you like my lovely, tall, bushy, old, pink Nepalese potted houseplant was a model sentence. English speakers, when using a list of adjectives, must start with a determiner or article, in this case my, followed by an opinion adjective, size, shape, age, color, nationality, religion if relevant, material, and then finally any noun used as an adjective before the noun itself that is being described by the list of adjectives. So, although cumbersome, do you like my lovely, tall, bushy, old, pink Nepalese potted houseplant is grammatically correct. Unfortunately, one of my students had a police superintendent for a father, and she had written down, Do you like the lovely, tall, bushy, old, pink Nepalese pot plant in my house? And never comfortable with his daughter being taught by a decadent Westerner, he and four other police officers turned up at my house the next day. It's something unpredictable, but in the end is right. I hope you had the time of your life. Paul the Octopus was used to predict the results of association football matches. Accurate predictions in the 2010 World Cup brought him worldwide attention as an animal oracle. As for me, a houseplant lover, I used a Carnegie Gigantia cactus, whom I called Saguaro the cactus, to help me with my predictions for the 2010 World Cup. I would stand in front of Saguaro and stare at his fat, succulent, green and spiny body until I started to feel I knew for sure what a match result was going to be. In the semi-finals, I made a stack of money, predicting exactly the Netherlands 3-2 victory over Uruguay and Spain's victory over Germany and the exact 1-0 scoreline. Saguaro the Cactus intimated to me that the Netherlands would beat Spain 4-0 in the final, but it was Spain that won and I lost all my money. A warning to all you houseplant lovers. Always be careful with a cactus. It has no loyalty and can sting you with its sharp spines without giving it a moment's thought. Never rely on one. Just leave it there to grow in the corner of the room. And that's all we have time for. You have been listening to Bill's Big Bag of Musicologies.
Bill's Big Bag of Musicologies is a guppy production for Colm Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. Mm-hmm.